Welcome to Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. I'm John Strickland. This is a podcast where we gaze into the crystal ball and look at what the future may hold for the airline business. I know from personal experience that it's never been an industry for the faint-hearted. There's always plenty of things to throw it off course, from wars and geopolitical upheavals to economic crises and natural disasters. And that's even before we factor in the massive challenge of sustainability. So with all these factors in mind, where might the industry be in 10 or 20 years from now? And what factors are going to shape its trajectory? Well, who better to answer these questions than those leading the industry, tapping into their wide experience and bringing their thinking, most importantly, to our podcast. We've already spoken on previous editions to a diverse group of leaders from different parts of the sector. So today, we're going to step back a little and take a more of a bird's eye view from an economist, ideally placed to comment on what turbulent environment we might encounter in the decades ahead. And I think all the more interesting today, because our guest actually comes from outside the sector and is a relative newcomer to aviation. So let me introduce Marie Owens-Thompson, Senior Vice President, Sustainability and Chief Economist at IATA. IATA, of course, being the global airline trade body. She actually joined IATA at the start of 2022 after holding leading positions in the financial sector and early in, in her career at IKEA. So welcome to Our Future Skies, Marie. I am thrilled to be here with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, delighted to have you. But I gave a little bit of a, a flavour to your background and, and mentioned you're, you're relatively fresh to the industry. So just if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, that background you came from, a, a very significant uh, financial career uh, predominantly. Yeah, so uh, so I, I self-identify as Swedish, <laughs> and that might explain uh, the stint at uh, IKEA. And uh, and I'm still uh, very fond of flat packages, uh, <laughs> and uh, and indeed uh, then I uh, continued as an economist and worked uh, for banks for uh, you know really the vast uh, majority of my career. And given that I'm 62 now, uh, that was uh, you know some good 20 years uh, in banking. And then I came to the point where uh, that was just sort of no longer really fitting uh, with. Uh, my view of uh, how I thought I should spend my remaining productive years. And I went looking for a new opportunity. And lo and behold, this happened. And of course, like every woman, I, I first saw the ad and didn't apply for chief economist at IATA because I thought, uh, oh, great job, but you know, pity I don't know anything about aviation. And then uh, whatever it was, three, four months later, I, I saw that the ad was still up. And then I thought, OK, they're obviously struggling, so so I can apply now. And uh, and here we are. So that was absolutely amazing. Fantastic. I mean, you, you mentioned about the, the idea that being a woman was a factor in your thinking. And, uh, you know, I've asked some other interviewees on, on, on this series. We've had uh, two or three uh, uh, leaders of airlines uh, who themselves uh, are, are women who've broken through, I suppose, the, the glass ceiling, if it's fair to say that. Uh, do, do you think that is still a, a, a challenge that's got to be given full attention and wrestled with in, in aviation? I mean, IATA itself has taken some particular initiatives, of course, with this 25 by 25 initiative uh, to employ at least 25% women in senior positions and across the business. Yes, absolutely. That is uh, definitely our commitment. And um and I think that's a great initiative. 
but obviously, clearly, it's not enough. And yeah, I do clearly think that this is a problem, not only in our industry, but in every industry. And I think uh, that what we need to solve this problem is more men hiring more women and then problem solved. So uh, definitely all credit goes to Willie Walsh, who had, uh, you know, the audacity to take such a decision. And, uh, and I am every day grateful. <laughs> Fantastic. And coming to aviation, I mean, to me, uh, you know, I've had my entire career in aviation. I don't know any other world, but I would say looking back to where you came from, primarily the, the financial community, that would seem to be to be an industry of uh, high returns, high margins, you know, high powered finance, employing you know, economic parameters to fuel its move forward, while aviation in all the time I've been in the industry, it's been uh, low margin, fragile, volatile, cyclical, all those things. Did, did you look at that and did, did that not in any way put you off? And has it indeed proved to be what you found? Yeah, no, uh, totally not off-putting and in many ways uh, motivating, uh, I would say, because as, as an economist, I really believe that, you know, I don't mean to oversimplify, but, you know, mm economic development has a, a very intimate connection with the uh, improvements in transportation and the reduction in transportation costs. So all forms of connectivity, you could say, and clearly not only aviation, but I would say aviation is a necessary but not sufficient. That's a phrase we like to use in economics. So aviation is a necessary but not sufficient condition for economic development. And I think uh, I even said in my interviews, you know, that I can more easily imagine a future without banks than I can imagine a future without airlines. And maybe that was the thing that clinched the deal. <laughs> and that's perhaps a good future, actually. Probably, I think you know what most people would prefer. <laughs> Indeed. We've just talked about you coming to the aviation sector and IATA's role as a, a global trade body for the sector. Many listeners will be in the industry and know a lot about IATA. Others may not. So would you just like to give us a little resume, if you like, of what IATA does, what are its key areas of focus and how that looks to be uh, delivering results for the future? Absolutely. So so IATA grew up uh, sort of hand in hand with uh, ICAO our uh, UN sister organization for civil aviation and ICAO then have the UN member states as members and we have uh, the airlines as members and we have about uh, 330 airlines as members all over the world and uh, and all of these companies they represent about 85% of global traffic so these organizations have now then IATA and ICAO been uh, active for 80 and 79 years, uh, respectively, and therefore have always uh, been the standard setting bodies and made sure, you know, that uh, we can now fly as safely as we can. Another thing that IATA does that you might not know is that we actually clear all the payments in the system. So you buy a ticket from your travel agent, maybe, and it involves perhaps two airlines. And, and then the ticket money goes through IATA, which helps uh, airlines, uh, you know, not overpay uh, for those services when we can do it for them. And many other such solutions also are provided by IATA. So standard setting, best practices, uh, things that we can do together in order to be more efficient uh, and save money. That's uh, pretty much uh, what we do on top of whatever advocacy our airlines uh, want us to 
uh, pursue as well. Well, thanks for that uh, explanation, Marie. I'm sure that's going to enlighten uh, those in the audience who didn't know about IATA already. Let's uh, take some of your, your your wide experience, Marie, and, and look at some of the big ticket issues that are going to affect the industry in the years ahead. And uh, you know, you've already published a lot of uh, material in IATA and presented on the diversity of facts which uh, are influencing the industry now and will continue to do so. Give us some flavors that we should be thinking about how they may uh, impact the industry in the decades ahead. Right. So my head first goes to sustainability and the need for our industry to become a sustainable industry so that we can continue to fly. And that goes back to my previous comment about how essential aviation is for economic development. So if we do believe that aviation is essential for economic development, then we have to uh, make sure that we can fly without uh, emitting uh, so much uh, CO2 and uh, and arguably other stuff. And here, I really feel like the world hasn't really made up its mind about this, which is mind-boggling, <laughs> you know? It's like, how can we make people, you know, wake up to this uh, intimate connection between our future present and future welfare and uh, and the preservation of connectivity and then in particular a- aviation connectivity. So we have Europe, for instance, you know, uh, speaking about travel, uh, not travel bans, but uh, bans on short haul flights, right? So that's an absolutely crazy uh, outlier strategy for dealing with uh, decarbonization, yeah, to reduce uh, options and choice for consumers. Yeah, that's very anti sort of the best terms of liberal economics that uh, have, after all, been so fruitful for so many people during the 20th century. So I think where I can go with this conversation and in terms of long-term trends and big influences, yeah, where I would go with this is that we are definitely seeing an increase in industrial policy, as we call it, yeah, which is a nice word for state intervention in the private sector. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm Swedish, right? So my model for this is a, is a free market coupled with strong social safeguards and support systems, right? So, so I am not, you know, necessarily the the the, the complete uh, animal style capitalism at all cost yeah but i do believe in free markets coupled with strong social support systems and that means that i have no room for governments choosing by which means of transportation people are supposed to move around that's a completely different economic philosophy and uh, and i object to that one strongly and uh, and i'm perturbed to see that across the board and across sectors we now find ourselves in this trend towards more industrial policy more inward looking economic policies uh, more transactional economic uh, behavior, uh, tit for tat, if you wish, uh, you know, less uh, obviously openness and systemic thinking. And this is uh, comes really at a very bad time because this is a time where we need more openness, more collaboration and more systemic thinking. So that's my biggest problem, I would say, in today's world economy. Well, let, let's let's just stick with the, that topic of sustainability, Marie, because as you said, uh, I mean, it's critical that the industry 
theoretically at least gets its house in order and that in itself is a big challenge but it does seem to me uh, there's a massive uh, di- dichotomy in that we again to echo what i mentioned we're here in europe but we've been listened to by people around the world that we maybe seem to have a a twin track approach or a dichotomy between say what the us and europe is doing while the rest of the world is getting on doing other things and we're going to touch on it in a number of ways but in europe we're looking to fetter the industry but if we look at growing economies for example in the middle east in asia it seems to me europe could shut down the us could shut down and still the rest of the world would go on but Pollution is an issue, and the emissions, of course, is a basic issue. But we just seem to be in a terrible tangle about the way forward and all this. The IATA, uh, which you're speaking for, um, is doing its best to push in terms of uh, improving the industry's credentials. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think it really is important that we uh, make up our minds about what what the role of the state is. And mm-hmm. then if we agree on that, then, uh, you know, what priorities that state should have. So in my mind, the role of the state is to enable and protect, not make difficult and uh, and then maybe protect. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. enable and protect. And then if we all agree that that is what we're supposed to do, then then the agenda becomes clear. Right. Then. Obviously, uh, states should uh, enable aviation to continue, and uh, and that must involve this transition to net zero. Of course, not only for aviation, but for the economy and global economy as a whole. Yeah, the the big thing for all of us is to you know wean ourselves of our addiction to fossil fuels. So that's really the issue. Yeah, and aviation is just a small part of that issue, but mm-hmm. a really important one given. Uh, how much we contribute to to economic development, right? So as long as we're dithering about these things, yeah, and we can't quite make up our minds about what our priorities are, then we will not succeed, yeah, uh, in in Europe or elsewhere. It's uh, and and I think that's uh, that's a problem we have now. I mean, I think that's a key point, isn't it? You know, the visibility of aviation is great, whether it's people living near airports and they hear the noise of departing and arriving aircraft or people looking up in the sky, especially on a a bright day and seeing vapor contrails and getting very exercised about the, the contribution to the climate change challenge and emissions over overall that, that it actually uh, does. But... It's disproportionate, as you say, to the impact that aviation produces positively. And we we don't seem to be getting a proper engagement, certainly not at a global level. Maybe that's a, a vain hope, I don't know, to get politicians to, to debate this sensibly and balance it out. And indeed, as you said, to commit resources, not to interfere, but to help when the private market doesn't or more likely cannot provide put some framework in place to ensure there's necessary investment uh, so that we can expedite this improvement. Exactly. And, uh, you know, maybe this is too much philosophy, but I also think that another problem we have is is that we're all too siloed. So in our industry, obviously, there is, you know, complete commitment and unanimity about what we're supposed to do. Yeah. So IATA committed to... Uh, becoming, um, you know, to bring aviation to to a sustainable uh, situation in uh, in terms of emissions. I'm struggling with net zero, given that soon we're not going to be allowed to say net zero, right? But 
I guess uh, mm. we're not there yet. So, so net zero in 2050 is uh, what IATA committed to in uh, 2021. ICAO, our UN uh, sister organization, committed to the same in 2022. And uh, and I think, uh, you know, there's just no other industry to my knowledge. Please uh, fact check me and send me an email if I'm wrong. But uh, I think we're the only industry who has this kind of complete united commitment from the airlines and from the member states under ICAO. But ICAO only governs aviation. So so obviously that is not the energy people nor the people with the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just sort of not enough when we're facing a systemic uh, crisis of this sort. So uh, that's the problem. And, you know, for 70, 80 years almost, you know, aviation managed its its issues really super well with these two sister organizations uh, working hand in hand for all this time, ever since the birth of civil aviation. And, you know, it's now, of course, the most safe and, and best performing mode of transportation in the world, right? So that's amazing. And they could do that without sort of much having to worry about other systemic issues. But today the world has changed. Today we have to worry about the world around us and and, uh, and how this all fits in with all the other bits. And, and that's where I come back to the idea that if we don't have a single-minded, united commitment to uh, realizing this energy transition, it's just simply not something that IATA and ICAO and the airlines can do on their own. They can, we can be 100% committed. We just can't do it on our own. And we have to somehow get the world to be able to think more systemically which is a huge challenge because our organizations are not set up in that way and our brains are arguably not even equipped uh, very well for for those types of holistic challenges. The challenge behind all of this is is technology. Do, do you, especially thinking of coming from outside the sector, have a, any hope that if there was more investment, we could actually speed that technology? So we're not talking about more than 50 years from now, we won't have long-haul aircraft that can fly by another means, say electric or hydrogen. Ah, 100%. And and this is the... This is the, the the crazy stuff, yeah, that, okay, we can debate how much money we need for our transition, yeah? Somewhere between three and five trillion, you know, we can make sure that uh, aviation is sustainable by 2050. And so that's obviously a large variance, yeah, I admit. But, okay, and it also sounds like a terrifyingly large number, but it's only a fraction of the money that goes into fossil fuel development and production today. So if we break our needs up on an annualized basis and we take the top figure, yeah, we're looking at five trillion, say, then then we just need a third of the money that already goes into that that currently is invested into oil and gas development on an annual basis. Yeah. So one third of their money would take care of, of our investment needs. And also, you know, the money that the governments spend on subsidizing fossil fuel uh, exploration and production would in turn, if we could redirect those subsidies to, you know, SAF, say, yes, yeah, sustainable aviation fuels or solutions for our industry, then that would pay for a third of our needs, right? So, uh, we are engaged uh, with governments to, uh, uh, you know, it, uh, at every level involved with them, with the other stakeholders in the world about how we can standardize and uh, 
various certifications of these fuels, get more pathways approved, pathways being the different types of feedstocks that inputs that you can use for making these sustainable aviation fuels. And, you know, just sort of building maybe some kind of matchmaking platforms, right, where energy producers, governments, airlines, and uh, other relevant persons can find each other and we can uh, help advance actual physical projects. So this, these are just a, a handful of, of the things that we are trying to do. So we feel like th we're sitting on a boiling cauldron, sort of, and, uh, and it's a very effervescent and, and sort of startup-minded space we're all in. It, it is very stimulating, but uh, it's also very challenging because there's all that still to be done. I think challenge is really an understatement, isn't it, Marie? I mean, if we look at governments uh, who are taking very different approaches to this, as you as you mentioned, we're at a very tiny percentage of uh, availability of these new sustainable fuels to what is required to, to meet the industry's objectives to be, become uh, carbon neutral. And we have some governments taking a relatively carrot-like approach and incentivizing production. Certainly the US uh, has been pretty well commended for doing that, while in Europe, for example, there's been more of a, a stick approach. Uh, and of course, this is going to lead to increased costs for the sector as well, isn't it? Uh, not just the investment uh, in getting the production, but uh, the price of those fuels is going to be higher. Ultimately, I guess that's going to feed through uh, to ticket prices in the medium to long term. Yeah, you have to assume, right? Because that's obviously necessary for a business to cover its costs. Yeah, that's what businesses must do otherwise they fail <laughs> and uh, and our margins are today our net margins uh, are in the vicinity of two and a half percent two point seven percent or something like five five dollars per passenger yeah so that's sort of the price of a coffee in London or Geneva yeah mm -hmm. so that so, so with those types of slim margins uh, clearly something is going to have to end up uh, impacting the ticket price at some point I think that's a very safe assumption but by the same token the faster we can get up these volumes and uh, and operate at scale arguably uh, the lower the price and the lower the impact uh, on the consumer. So that's also another reason why we feel such a great sense of urgency with all of this. The faster we can do this, not only will it be better for the planet, but it will be better for the consumers and better for the airlines and the airports and everybody else. So it's a huge win, 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 win scenario here <laughs> if we can uh, if we can all just uh, make up our minds and, and that we actually need to do this. So there's an issue about the cost effectiveness of, of the associated policies, right? And I, I would, I, I just really wish that governments uh, would engage more in uh, evidence-based policymaking because clearly, you know, these short-haul bans have virtually no visible impact on emissions right but they obviously create uh huge uh, disruptions and worse service for the customers so so that is uh, i think uh, both uh, skipple and uh, the french uh, ban on short haul flights are uh, stark examples of uh, clearly not cost effective policies cost effective meaning what is the cost i'm paying for this unit of decarbonization right those relationships are completely out of whack on those types of policies.
I think we could just do just do a podcast on this whole sustainability issue, but I'm just going to move us away from it now, just on some of the other issues, and I'm sure it's going to uh, lap in as as we go along. And I'm really wondering about this question. We see very different uh, developments of population according to which part of the world we're in, particularly in Europe and the US. We see more of an aging population in countries such as Japan, even areas of growth that we think about, such as China. There's talk some decades down the line, admittedly, but of peak population. Africa has a particularly young skewing of its population. Give us uh, some of your thinking about what that means as drivers uh, for levels of demand and uh, the type of travel that we're going to see in the decades ahead as far as airlines are concerned. Right. So first, as an economist, uh, you know, obviously we we like uh, having access to lots of people because they work and they help us uh, grow our economies. So the fact that uh, population growth will peak yeah, at some point and now most people think that it might peak a little bit earlier than uh, what they previously thought and maybe at a lower level, right? So we're sort of moving from thinking 10, 11 billion people in 2100 to to thinking maybe 9 billion might be the peak and, and maybe indeed somewhere around 2050 or shortly thereafter. So this sort of fundamentally spells uh, some kind of threat of lack of uh, working uh, people in the economy. And of course, we know that the, the, there's a bunch of countries who are more affected by this than others. And of course, this wouldn't necessarily be a problem if uh, if it weren't so politically fraught, because there's there's clearly enough people on earth. <laughs> yeah. And if some people are lacking uh, working age population over here, they could, you know, usefully uh, promote migration. That's, you know, one very thorny issue we we know not only in the us but for europe and almost every country has sort of become less open to migration so we're shooting ourselves in the foot on that one yeah we can see the problem coming but we're not uh, liking the solution and uh, if we don't like migration what do we do about shrinking populations well we we can work longer hours not popular <laughs> we we can uh, you know, become more productive. Okay, here we might start to think that there might be things that we can do because maybe thanks to technology and artificial intelligence and all of those things, maybe it's possible to be as productive in the future, even if the population is at some point smaller. So what it really does for me is is say that, you know, the probability that we're going to have an increase in our potential growth rate in the future is low. Yeah. And that, again, comes at a very unfortunate point in time because we're just now needing, you know, more growth to tackle climate change and all of these other issues. And for the airline industry, you know, growth, GDP growth and population growth is, uh, you know, one of the most influential factors in terms of driving traffic demand, both on the cargo and on the passenger side. Obviously, on the cargo side, there's also how do these people trade with each other, right? The, yeah, so trade is part, is a very important explanatory factor also for the cargo demand. So so that's sort of structurally not super great, yeah? If we look uh, over long periods, I'm talking now, yeah? The, this century, put it that way, right? Uh, so, so the fundamentals are turning a lot less supportive than they were in the 20th century, yeah? the 21st century, is not as favorable 
many of these sort of structural factors influencing our industry and the global economy are at, at the very least they're becoming less supportive yeah and uh, and in some cases uh, you know maybe even outright detrimental now so obviously the answer lies in how we deal with these problems and human ingenuity and all of these things innovation ai maybe we will find solutions to this. And as long as we can find some solutions to this and the world economy can still grow, then our industry can still grow. If there's money to pay for the tickets and to buy the goods and to ship the goods, then uh, then it's not necessarily a curse for us to be a shrinking industry because the population is shrinking, but it certainly makes it more challenging. And if we manage to have growth and growth in income, then we can expand our activity amongst the shrinking population, right? Grab a bigger share uh, of this uh, shrinking population. And that is obviously what we need to prevent those who will still be around from uh, from having worse economic outcomes, yeah? Just as you, you talk then, Maria, I mean, it's just incredibly complicated, isn't it? Uh, these trends going forward, because I was reflecting that we, we came out of COVID and even as, as we the industry was trying to pick itself up during the COVID pandemic, the strongest flows of traffic were, first of all, VFR, as the industry calls it, visiting friends and relations. And that reflects partly into what you described about migration flows. There's always been big worker flows, let's say, from uh, Indian subcontinent to the Gulf, from Mexico, Latin America to North America, from Eastern Europe to Western Europe, and many others. And people wanted to visit their friends and family. Uh, the needs of economies to bring labor in from other places because of lack of uh, manpower. That's been a major, a major flow of traffic. Also, typically uh, quite a price sensitive flow of traffic. Aging population is another where uh, we see many people took early retirement out of COVID in countries like the US. Uh, and they've got plenty of money in the bank and they're going off on this. Uh, what was called revenge travel. It seems to be carrying on beyond that. So there's a lot going on there. But I was just thinking alongside that, as well as the issue of population itself, there are changes in wealth and even polarization of wealth. Uh, we seem to be getting the, the, the super rich get richer, while many others don't have uh, money to put food on the table. So the price sensitive travel, which is going along with that um, VFR flow that I mentioned, is maybe under threat. It's hard to pick our way through this, isn't it, uh, to work out which way it's going to go in, in volumes and kind of traffic for the industry. Yeah, exactly. Because you can have uh, many of these things happening simultaneously. You can have, you know, a worsening income distribution, but still, you know, uh, the average level of income in the country rising. Yeah. And then we need to plug in, you know, how many, what's the population growth? So, so maybe our segment of that uh, population could still be growing, yeah, even if uh, these other problems, you know, threaten our activity in exactly the way you say. And and I think that's sort of basically where I'm at for at least the foreseeable future, that, okay, we can see these threats, but I still believe that there are sufficiently, there are sufficient gains in mm -hmm. absolute incomes to offset whatever we might be losing in certain segments. So simply put, because of China and India, <laughs> yeah, yes. more people in China and India are going to earn better incomes, even if we have all of these negative things going on at the same time. 
and uh, and then there's a numbers game so which i think plays to our industry's favor you know we we don't collect data for instance on purpose of travel yes we don't know necessarily why they travel but we do collect data on by which in which cabin class they travel and here we have seen since uh, the pandemic the same expansion of both um, what we call premium, yeah, so first in business, and then economy is everything else. And they have been growing at the same pace, pace, the two of them. So indeed, maybe some business travelers are not traveling, but if so, they are being replaced by these other people coming into uh, being able to travel. So for now, I think uh, that the trend is definitely positive, I would argue, and certainly until we do get closer to this peak population and so on, unless something, unless the next crisis comes, you know, which of course mm-hmm. there's, that can always happen. <laughs> and as you said, you know, China, India, they, they have large populations, the, the growth particularly talked about uh, the middle class in India. We see it even yeah. in the, the blossoming of airlines in those countries and not just within the countries, but from That's those right. countries, this hunger to travel, particularly the young generation, We've talked with African leaders in the series about, one, the necessity of air travel on the size of that continent, but many young people in Africa having to move significant distances and from one country to another for work, but also because they want to. And where people have money in the pocket, particularly young generations, they want to travel and explore, which to me, I find a positive thing. But that brings me into thinking about another conflict, which you you have talked about a lot uh, in the immediate term. And we're not focused on the immediate term, but it is a big change. That we This year, you've quoted, of course, in, in the art of the largest number of elections we've ever seen affecting something like 70% of the population. We've seen big political turmoil uh, in recent years. So... And a closing down, we, we've touched on the issue of migration, uh, more inward looking. How how might we square this? I'm really asking to look at your own crystal ball because I certainly don't have the, the answer. Uh, there is this desire. Young people who are future want to travel, are traveling while they have a chance, yet political systems in some ways are risking inhibiting it through either inward looking or the whole challenge we've, we've debated or, or discussed of sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So I think it's uh, about 70 countries and certainly a majority of the world population. I think uh, 4.3 billion people will vote. And, um, and this is a first in history uh, that, uh, that we have so many votes, which, you know, on the one hand, you could think, oh, that's fantastic, you know. Uh, maybe democracy is spreading, but no, 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 not so fast, because obviously we don't know necessarily the outcome of these elections. And uh, and there's, uh, you know, reasons to fear that there will be a shift uh, rather to towards uh, the right, or in any case, that whatever we think about uh, our own preferred policies, that there will be big policy shifts, yeah, depending on the outcome of these elections. And that's always unfriendly sort of to business in general, yeah, that there are uh, starts and stops sort of in our government's policy stances. So so I, I think that's a big threat. And and if we put it, uh, you know, it, in uh, in terms of long, really long-term trends and talk about centuries, we I feel compelled to say that the 20th century was obviously the best uh, century on record. Yeah, that was uh, absolutely amazing, driven in large part by innovation in transportation and falling cost of transportation and by the spread 
of the use of fossil energies. And now we have this uh, current century, which I think is going to be indeed mired by all of these, of a lot of volatility and much more complicated general environment. And um, the best period, obviously, in the last century was the after-war period. And, and again, that was when civil aviation, global civil aviation, was invented by these people who really had the imagination to understand that in order to make a better world, we need to connect people. Yeah, we need to allow people to meet each other and do things together, and and we need to collaborate. And and they really saw this sector that they created. You know, they had the vision to see that this is a sector that can promote peace and economic development for everybody. And that's indeed what happened in the 20th century. You know, longest period of peace. Right mm -hmm. now, now we already have two wars. You know, amongst other armed conflicts, you know, to contend with. And yeah, this uh, this is going to be a much more complicated uh, century. Now, I still believe, indeed, as you say, in our own surveys of passengers and so on, clearly show that people still want to travel. People do want to be connected. Most people do indeed grasp these notions, yeah, of what aviation can do for the world in terms of, again, economic development and connecting people and promoting peace and so on. So I'm not so worried about the, the young people and what they want. I'm much more worried about the governments and what they might do. Yeah, certainly that's the, the, the biggest unknown, I guess, within human control in, in the, uh, the decades ahead. Just uh, again, you touched on uh, another aspect of the future already there. We're seeing massive technological developments now in the 21st century, and AI is the, 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 uh, uh, the term which is on everybody's tongue these days. Uh, some fearful, some seeing it as an opportunity. As an economist, how do you look at that? Because undoubtedly, uh, including our own industry, it allows an amazing number of things to be done that couldn't be done in the past or with the same scale or the same reliability. On the other, there could be fear about uh, will it uh, be negative from a point of view of uh, employment and, and working conditions, but equally, could it be positive? Are people going to have more leisure time? Uh, brings back the question about income distribution and so on. What's your reflections on, on that as a, an input to aviation's future? Yeah, I think that indeed in these long-term evolutions, um, your, your question makes me uh, want to stress as well that another long-term uh, trend that we all have to contend with is the speed of change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so things are definitely changing faster and ever faster. And I think AI is obviously one of these areas where you, many of us will completely struggle to 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 including governments. Yeah. To to even grasp, you know, what the cons. I don't think we have, you know, anywhere near the imagination today to really assess what this is going to do to us all. So that's sort of problematic, uh, I believe, because obviously that risks, a, a, you know, lagging regulation, which is already a problem. Yeah, that regulation lags, and it's just going to continue to lag probably, and it might be inappropriate and. And so it's going to be more and more challenging for us all to adapt to, to all of these new technologies that are coming at breakneck speed. And of course, any technological change, uh, as far as we have experienced this in economic history, yeah, brings this kind of, you know, what Schumpeter called the creative destruction to us all. 
meaning that jobs disappear and then new jobs are created. It wasn't that long ago that podcasts didn't exist, right? But now we do podcasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, so people will obviously engage in new activities, but there will always be a group of people who, who will be in the middle of this churn and will struggle to find, you know, gainful employment or improve their economic uh, and general welfare. So that's where I come back to the Swedish economic model. Yeah, that the... I think we can embrace technology in general. It's, of course, great if regulation can keep up with it and protect us from its worst, worst uh, instincts. And then if we also can protect those who somehow fall into the cracks, then, uh, then I think uh, indeed that this has the capacity to overcome some of those other structural problems that we have, including the peaking pop- population and the other structural impediments to growth uh, that we face. Yeah. So definitely I'm, I'm putting sort of a, a very large portion of my hopes into uh, rapid technological change. Although, as we've now just said, that comes with its own sets of risks and it needs to be managed. Yeah. And c- certainly the industry is in its infancy of uh, using what is available uh, in terms of not just AI, but big data. And you know, big data has been around uh, some time now, but I, I'm fascinated myself when I think that uh, in my earlier airline career doing analysis on things like network planning, we were always looking at the past, but now we can look at the present and to an extent the future because big data allows to, us to do it. You know, the airline industry is understanding more about its customers. We see where people are searching for flights. People are looking at certain price ranges, helping the industry to plan ahead we have aircraft that are able to communicate directly with the ground about defects before they even arrive so they can be ready with spare parts to fix them so there's a fascinating and positive side there uh, i guess yeah but we still need to connect with an equally positive mindset if such Mm -hmm. a thing were possible (laughs) yeah and uh, and i think that's where things are not looking so great you know that there's there's a, a decrease in collaboration in general certainly mm-hmm. between between countries and and uh, very hard to 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 bring about international agreements right uh, and actually see people live up to them and similarly i would say that sort of that this is happens in industries as well yeah that for many reasons uh, that industries might not want to collaborate with other i mean sectors maybe i should say yeah that sectors don't various parts of the value chain in a sector might not want to share and collaborate with other parts in that value chain yeah, for a, a number of reasons. Whereas if we could, you know, and and of course, aviation is special, <laughs> we think in general, uh, mm-hmm. but it's also special in this respect, yeah, that the gains, you know, would be so phenomenal if we can get global collaboration in our in our sector and you know if we could have the air traffic controllers and the airports and the airlines actually working together uh, to improve the passenger experience you know that would be amazing <laughs> i i think uh, you know th- there's just so much that could be done thanks to the data that we all have uh, but that we don't necessarily share with each other so that problem i think is amplified is amplifying as a general trend and exists at every level in our economies. 
and it certainly is it's counterintuitive i mean to an extent uh, just reflecting as you were speaking there marie you know, the pandemic i must admit maybe i rather idealistically b- believed that was something that it was humanity against a pandemic we did okay and you know we've we've got through uh, the worst of that pandemic but we also showed that we, we were in many ways incapable to cooperate we didn't do as much as we could eartra again led the way there to try to simplify documentation and testing and so on uh so i, I think we've probably got a lot more to learn as a species to try to get back that way yet we're in this global industry that links people uh whereas we discussed you know, young people in particular they want the joy of traveling we we want to meet people from different countries and cultures and not just from a leisure point of view but to trade trade with them as well Yes, and work in different places mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, migrate and, and help uh, everybody do better. It's, uh, it's, it's not just, uh, I mean, I, let's not uh, underestimate the importance of tourism in the various economies around mm-hmm. the world. Yeah, so, so, of course, uh, tourism is, uh, many countries depend on it for their economic uh, growth. So uh, wanting to go on holiday is a really important uh, thing for, for many economies. But but it goes beyond that, yeah. So I sort of uh, object to nothing that you said, of course. <laughs> but but it makes me think of the idea uh, that many people have that this is somehow frivolous, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, sort of what where you have been, you know, for the past, certainly since COVID. You know, pe- people who lived through COVID and saw that recession and and the millions of people unemployed and all the airlines grounded and then they think that we can somehow do without aviation not on, i'm not saying that that's the only thing we can't do without it's mm-hmm. obviously one of many but uh, but you know clearly the impact of not having access to that should have people forgotten that that's i i don't really understand how it can't be obvious to us all the detriment that that would do to us all individually into the world economy if we curtail this right well i i think that particular issue puts it into um sharp focus you know countries whether they are island economies or or not you know that rely yeah. as you said increasingly on tourism where jobs have been created livelihoods have been fostered because aviation is the only means to bring people uh, as visitors to and from those countries. And yes, that needs to be managed in the context, another topic in its own right, not for today, of over-tourism and what we've touched on already with sustainability. But this is the 21st century. We want to travel around our globe and enjoy it. And I think it's interesting as well, if we look at aviation's development right now, if we look at order books for aircraft in the years ahead, we're seeing some massive shifts there, which perhaps reflect what's happening in geopolitics. Saudi Arabia opening up, uh, no no longer prepared to accept being an oil-based economy, really looking for tourism. Vision 2030, hundreds of aircraft on order, talking about getting more air services into that country, uh, showing what they have to offer culturally as well as trade. China, of course, and India, we've talked about the desire there. But those are examples of a recognition of the value of aviation. Still, the latent potential of Africa, which is not yet coming through. It's massively underserved and people are hungry for travel. Absolutely. And uh, and obviously, the oil-producing countries in the Middle East, they they understand that they are not, you know, probably, it depends on what happens during all of these elections and afterwards. <laughs> but in principle, we, the world is more or less committed to 
weaning itself off of fossil fuel and therefore those economies need to find other areas in which they can generate economic growth for themselves and and here we see again yeah that obviously the the role that aviation will play in any such endeavor so there's there's one um, problem obviously that uh, airlines uh, have always uh, faced uh, ever in recent history, uh, maybe I should say, and that is uh, the fact that it is so exposed to the global trends and the global business cycle, and and sort of basically any crisis that happens is going to have an impact on aviation. And I think, you know, arguably even in to a greater extent than what I experienced in the financial sector. So so very agitated sector, very vulnerable to all of these external impacts, and therefore a sector that struggles to be sustainably profitable. Yeah. And of course, COVID was, uh, you know, the mother of all shocks, right? With uh, where uh, airlines lost $140 billion in, uh, in 2020. And now the airlines have returned to profitability, which is in it of itself, absolutely amazing. Yeah. That to, to do that in the space of so few years, uh, so I think that really shows how resilient our industry is. Yeah, It's like a bit of a whack-a-mole industry, right? It gets hit repeatedly, but always <laughs> bounces back. And that's fantastic. But what I wish for the industry is, is that maybe, maybe it could build more robustness. Yeah. So that when it gets these hits, it might actually be able to withstand that shock better and perhaps not fall over sort of every time right and uh, well that, that was something i wanted to put to you marie because you know we did see coming out of covid it was in many ways quite shocking of course to airlines around the world that are not well run and not robust in terms of financial resources i think there was a feeling that certainly uh, for a number of European carriers, not least the, the large low-cost carriers, a number of the, the, the airlines in the US were in a very robust financial position. Yet COVID hit, and of course cash was bleeding out of the, the, the airline's coffers in millions of whatever currency unit you would choose to pick every day. And airlines went, some of them, uh, asking governments to help them out. And yet there'd been this confidence in some airline management that, oh, we're never going to face uh, cyclical challenges again. We're giving big dividends to our shareholders. But when the chips were down, they had to go back. So that was exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Would you be optimistic oh, the industry can learn from this and not repeat that and get into a robust state for the future? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things to think about here mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, and, and looking at, aviation throughout its history and and how it has evolved you know so so part of me wants to say that that airlines have sort of outsourced uh, most of the profit making areas right to other parts of the value chain and uh, and sort of now they're left with the bits that uh, that are less uh, profit making obviously so and also the unique nature of our value chain, right? That upstream, it is mostly sort of monopolistic or oligopolistic entities. Yeah, we do only have two aircraft manufacturers. Airports, of course, we can discuss, but basically they are some kind of natural monopoly after all. And um, only a few ticket distributors, which the airlines used to own, by the way, right? And now, now uh, they uh, have... Uh, you know, this oligopolistic situation. So upstream airlines don't have any 
means to influence much the prices that those guys are going to charge the airlines, right? So airlines are price takers upstream. And, and then downstream, there's this absolutely crazy competitive environment, which uh, also I don't think exists anywhere else, right? That people can actually go online and find everybody's ticket price on every flight, everywhere, all the time. You know, in financial markets, we obviously have something that looks a bit like that, but it's B2B. So no bank mm. would ever show those screens to the customers. Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that is just an absolutely uh, intense competitive environment, which obviously forces airlines to compete on price. So they're sort of squeezed between, uh, you know, not being able to eke out or, or influence much the price they charge the customers and not be able to influence much the price for all the upstream services uh, that airlines need. And the biggest one of those is, of course, fuel. Yeah, 30% of airlines cost is fuel. So, um, so, so how do we change this? You know, I think we really need to think about, uh, and of course airlines are, yeah, uh, thinking about that on a daily basis. And, uh, and many are doing uh, all kinds of creative stuff. But if I just look at the industry as a whole, I, I, and my wish for the industry, it would, it would perhaps be like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we could insource our fuel supply? And, and maybe this is the opportunity to, uh, to do that, given that we are all engaged, uh, hopefully, in this uh, energy transition. Well, maybe, Marie, that's a good uh, point on which to draw to a close. Uh, I could certainly ask you many more questions, but I think uh, uh, we have to call it a day for this particular podcast. So uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today uh, to hear your broader economic insights and your reflections coming quite recently to aviation. So Marie Owens-Thompson, Senior Vice President, Sustainability and Chief Economist at IATA, thank you very much indeed. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to you for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode of Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. But for now, from me, John Strickland, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group, Inc. or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions or delays in this information or any losses, injuries or damages arising from its use.